This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Kristen Turner, and welcome to New Books in Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Dr. Kevin Bartik about his book, Sergei Prokofiev's Alexander Nevsky, which is part of the first cohort of books in the new keynote series from Oxford University Press. Kevin is also the author of Composing for the Red Screen, Sergei Prokofiev and Soviet Film, which came out in 2013. He is an associate professor of musicology at Michigan State University and specializes in music and culture in Eastern Europe and the U.S. Welcome, Kevin. It's so great to have you with us. Thanks for having me here. I'm very happy to be here. All right. So I'd like to start just by finding out a little bit more about this new keynote series from Oxford and why you chose this piece as the subject for this book. Well, sure. Uh, it was actually the series editor for the, for the keynote series, Kevin Carnes, who originally suggested that I consider writing about Alexander Nevsky. Although I think he would have been happy to, to entertain other choices, but it really was a logical choice given the topic of my first book, which you mentioned uh, deals with Prokofiev's film music as a whole. But I think Nevsky is a particularly interesting choice for the series uh, because it's one of those rare works in the 20th century where what you might call the, the academic canon and the performance canon line up. Um, in the academic canon being... Uh, populated with the works that we tend to use as marking key moments and developments in the history of music. You know, the, the ones we talk about in classrooms and at conferences, the performance canon, of course, being the works that most often show up on concert programs, recordings and such music that gets listened to a lot. And the 20th century is a time where I think these canons are particularly divergent, but in the case of Alexander Nevsky, we have a work that gets performed a lot, um, at least in, in its form as a, as a concert cantata. And since the late 1940s, dozens of professional recordings have been made. But it's also a work that, thanks to its date of composition and its place in Prokofiev's career, really gets held up as one of those key works in music history. In this case, articulating the development of aesthetics in, in Soviet Russia. And, and not to mention that the film, Alexander Nevsky, for which this music was originally written, uh, is, is now a classic, uh, which gives me, uh, Prokofiev's music uh, a sort of interdisciplinary relevance that I think is, is really unique and really interesting and uh, opens up lots of doors for exploration. Just to make sure that everybody knows uh, this work, I know that a lot of musicologists teach this all the time, but just to give us a little bit of background, can you tell us a little bit about the movie and 
its place in history, as well as then the score. So we're talking about, you know, both of those aspects. Yeah, sure. Of course. Uh, so this was a 1938 film uh, made by the great film director, Sergei Eisenstein, uh, for which Prokofiev wrote a, a film score. And its subject, uh, Alexander Nevsky. Um, Alexander was a real uh, historical figure in Russian history, lived right in the middle of the 13th century, born in 1221 and died in 1263. And he lived in uh, what's known as Rus, which is the direct predecessor of modern Russia, which is sort of a, a loose federation of towns and groups uh, in what is today's Western Russia. And Alexander was known for being one of Rus's uh, great military defenders. And his first big victory came in 1240, uh, where at the time he was the, the Prince of Novgorod, which was uh, one of the major cities in northern Rus. And he's, he's famous for driving back a band of, of Swedish forces at the River Neva, which is the, the river that flows through modern-day St. Petersburg. Um, and his victory at this, this river, uh, Neva, is where actually he gets his nickname, uh, Neva Nevsky. Uh, so we know him today as, as Alexander Nevsky. Uh, but the, the really decisive battle for which he's remembered uh, came the following year. And this is when uh, Beskov, which was a, a neighboring city, was taken by knights of the so-called Livonian order. Um, so these, these would have been knights who came from what would become modern Germany and, and Estonia. And they invaded from the West. And Alexander, who was 20 years old at the time, uh, led an army to drive the knights back. Uh, and, and again, spared uh, his city of Novgorod uh, invasion. And largely because of these victories, um, uh, he, he became something of a statesman and went on to become uh, the Grand Prince of Vladimir, which was really the most powerful position in, in medieval Rus. So he's one of the central figures in the, in the 13th century. But really what we know about Alexander, the, the person, uh, primarily comes from chronicles that were written in the 13th and 14th centuries, where these battles are really played up as, as big victories. Uh, but this is definitely not a historical figure whose biography was uh, particularly fleshed out at all in, in the 1930s. So in the film that was made in 1938, uh, Alexander becomes uh, basically everything you'd want a hero to be. He's, he's decisive, he's calm, he's collected, he's a brilliant strategist on the battlefield. Uh, he's handsome. He's played by Nikolai Cherkasov, who was one of the great actors of the Stalin era. Um, uh, listeners might know that he went on to, to play Ivan in Eisenstein's uh, later film, Ivan the Terrible. Uh, but in the film, we're really not distracted by anything extra. We don't learn much about Alexander's life, for instance, and he can come off as a little caricature. Um, this is a film where the, the good guy, bad guy contrast is really, really played up. Um, and sometimes my students chuckle at this a little bit when I, when I show them the film. Uh, but Eisenstein places Alexander into, into this film, which has a very straightforward narrative. Its focus is on the second battle uh, where Alexander repels the, the Teutonic Knights. And the battle itself takes uh, over a third of the film. So, so really the plot is, is very simple. You see the preparation for the battle, uh, the battle itself, and uh, in the very famous climax of the film, uh, Alexander eventually forces the Teutonic Knights out onto a frozen lake. 
and under the weight of their armor, the ice cracks and they plunge to their deaths. Um, and following that, Alexander makes a triumphant entrance into uh, Pskov, which he's liberated. And at the end of the film, he proclaims what became uh, very famous lines. Uh, and he says something to the effect of, um, he who comes to us as a guest, let him come with no reservation. But he who comes to us, who comes to us with a sword shall die by the sword. On this stands Russia and on this she will stand forever. And these lines are really critical uh, because the film in 1938 was supposed to be understood both as a historical film, but also as an allegory of the contemporary political situation in, in, in Europe. Uh, and at this point, things looked really bad in, in Western Europe. And this historical tale was meant to stir up some patriotism and to teach viewers that Russia had always been mighty and there was historical precedent for Russians fighting back the Germans. Uh, but in, in terms of these two artists, uh, Eisenstein's and, and Eisenstein and Prokofiev, uh, the, the film was really significant for their careers, especially for Eisenstein, because Eisenstein had not made a film at all in the 1930s. Kevin, thank you for explaining how this movie is important and uh, explaining about Eisenstein. Uh, Eisenstein, of course, is the director of this movie. Can you now talk a little bit about how this as a film score is important to Prokofiev and Prokofiev's uh, sure. reputation? Um, so Prokofiev, again, wrote this in 1938. And by that point, he had a very substantial international reputation in place. So we'd certainly know him without this film. Uh, but what Nevsky did for Prokofiev was to really to restore his place in Russian musical culture and Soviet musical culture. He had emigrated in 1918 and didn't return permanently to his homeland until 1936. And uh, when he returned in 1936, of course, this was at the height of the Stalin years. And there was a great deal of suspicion over the years he had spent abroad, uh, even though uh, the Soviet Union had really rolled out the red carpet for him uh, to try and entice him back. Uh, but it took the success of, of Nevsky, uh, both his music for the film and as the cantata that Prokofiev arranged from the film music a year later, to cement his place in, in Soviet musical culture and, and kind of prove himself. Uh, and so much so, uh, the success of this music um, even got Prokofiev considered for a Stalin Prize, which was uh, really the top prize in the arts in the Soviet Union. And the transcripts of the discussion uh, of the Stalin Prize Committee are really fascinating uh, because several committee members talk about uh, the ways in which the music demonstrates how Prokofiev had really learned how to speak to Soviet people. And one, one of the commentators even said that uh, Mikhail Glinka would have been happy to sign his name to one of Prokofiev's songs. And this was really serious praise because Glinka was considered the, the father of Russian music, uh, sort of in the same way that Alexander Pushkin was considered the father of, of Russian literature. And the, the popular, uh, popularity of Nevsky, of course, didn't hurt them abroad either, um, even if Prokofiev was already a known quantity there. Uh, but we can also think of Nevsky uh, as a work uh, that not only affirmed up Prokofiev's position in Soviet culture after his repatriation, but it opened the door to later works such as the Fifth Symphony and War and Peace and these, these big Soviet-era works uh, for which we really know Prokofiev today. These are among his, his most popular, most famous works. 
I'm interested first. So, of course, Prokofiev uh, later arranged this as the cantata, but let's first talk about it as a film score itself. I always thought of film scoring as being the sort of magic thing that was different from absolutely everything else. And yet your book talks about it a little differently. Can you talk a little bit about the compositional process and how Prokofiev's earlier music helped him uh, be uh, successful both in this film and his other film scores? Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, I, I think most of us, uh, if we know anything about film music, are really used to the Hollywood model, uh, where the composer does his or her work after all the filming is done and much of the editing is done. Uh, so they're really brought in at the last minute. Uh, and that process of providing music for a film is often, oftentimes very collective, um, where someone other than the composer might be doing the orchestration or rehearsing the orchestra and, and so on. In Soviet studios, uh, at least in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, had a far less regimented process here. Uh, music might be written before, during, or after filming, and oftentimes this things made uh, made things really messy uh, when it came down to editing at the end, and music and image had to be joined. Uh, so when Prokofiev comes to this, uh, he. Um, he, he sort of adopts this very fluid model of the Soviet studio and actually writes some music before filming has begun. Uh, if, if listeners know the very famous scene in the film where the Teutonic army advances for the first time and you hear um, this repetitive pattern as the army advances, this was music that Prokofiev actually wrote before Eisenstein had even begun filming that scene. Um, so, so he was happy to do that. And in, in that respect, uh, he could draw a lot on his experience in, in ballet, for instance, where he was working largely from a scenario, just some ideas of the way things would look. And he would write music of an approximate length to, to fit that. Uh, but what's really unique about the collaboration of Prokofiev and Eisenstein is what happened uh, a little bit later in the production, specifically in the, in the last month of putting this, this film together. And uh, the director and the composer worked really closely at this point, uh, almost on a daily basis. And they would meet at night, and there's some kind of famous accounts of this that both Prokofiev and Eisenstein wrote. And Eisenstein would, would supposedly come in and show rushes from that day, so sequences that he had filmed that day um, or prepared that day. Well, Prokofiev would watch them go home that evening, write a short little piece of music to accompany it, come back the next day and make a reference recording at the piano, which Eisenstein could then use in the editing room. He could play this. And uh, when he dealt with the montage or putting different shots together, uh, he could do it uh, basically with this music as a, as a reference point. Um, so when it came time to actually record the score and put it with image, there was uh, a certain... Uh, organic connection that you don't often have in in other types of, of film scoring. Uh, and another interesting thing here that I think is, is really unique about this project is that Prokofiev insisted on being involved at all stages, uh, especially after the music was written. Uh, he orchestrated it himself, and he also insisted on being present for the recording process. And he rehearsed the orchestra himself, and he was there... Um, largely so he could change things that he 
didn't think would fit very well in the film or change instrumentation here and there. Uh, so he was really insistent that he main con- remain control, uh, remain in control, I should say, over the final product into the very end. Sort of, sort of the same way that he would have done in a, in a ballet, for for instance. So he drew a lot on his previous experience in audiovisual genres. And I think this has a lot to do with the fact that he came to uh, came to film music relatively late in his career. He was already in his forties when he when he began composing film music. So do you did he maintain that control in all of his film scores, or was it just this one that he was particularly concerned about that? Uh, well, that's that's an interesting question because uh, he, in his career, wrote eight film scores, and two of them were for for Eisenstein projects. And uh, the first one, obviously, being Alexander Nevsky, and the second, Ivan the Terrible. And in both of those projects, the model was was very similar. He worked very closely with Eisenstein, uh, was involved in the the recording process. Uh, the other films are are are, are very very different in the way he approached them. Uh, the first two, uh, which came before Alexander Nevsky, uh, the, the first was a 1934 film called Lieutenant Kija. And this, this was a film where Prokofiev wrote the majority of the music uh, having never seen the film. And he, did, in fact, he composed a number of the cues for the film by correspondence. He was living in Paris and the film was being shot in Leningrad. And he, he conducted this by, by mail. And his idea was to write a few pieces um, that totaled maybe in the end 15 minutes of music total that the, that the director of the film could use however he saw fit. Uh, so his conception here was largely of film music as, as almost incidental music for a, for a play. And he did the same thing with a second score uh, that he did in 1936 which was supposed to be a screen version of Alexander Pushkin's Queen of Spades. And the, the really fascinating thing here is he wrote the whole score and in the end, the film was never made. So you have this, this weird situation where you have uh, a film score for a film that doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> uh, and the, the other four films were uh, uh, Prokofiev wrote scores for these films during the war years, during the Second World War, and he did this uh, largely to to make money. Uh, he was fairly cash strapped during the war, uh, so these were projects he took on for that, and they were for relatively obscure films. And he really didn't have a lot of respect for the directors of these films, so the working conditions were uh, were not great, and these these are projects that are largely today forgotten in terms of Prokofiev's film music. Uh, well, you're bringing up some uh, details about his life, too, in that answer. Uh, and that, of course, brings me to think about how the other reason that Prokofiev is famous, I think, for musicologists anyway, is that he is one of the few composers I can think of who chose a few artists or anyone who chose to leave the West and move to the Soviet Union during Stalin's reign. And that seems on the outside to be an insane choice, really. So can you talk a little bit about why he made that choice? I know that the other thing that comes out in your book as well is that 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 gave him a rather unique standing within the uh, musical, political structure there. So I'd love you to talk a little bit about his biography and particularly that, that, um, aspect of it. Yeah, sure, of course, because it, it does seem like a very unusual choice. Uh, so, so during the 1920s, 
uh, Prokofiev really tried to build an international career working from Paris. And he had some real successes here. And he collaborated with, with uh, artists like Serge Diaghilev, the great impresario. But beginning in 1927, Prokofiev began making trips back to Russia. And the reception he received there was nothing like he had received in the West, particularly because in the West, he was competing with other big name emigres, especially Igor Stravinsky. And so the, the really enthusiastic reception in the Soviet Union was an enormous burst to, uh, boost to his ego uh, and really started to exert a strong pull on him. Uh, and another thing is, uh, by 1936, and this is the year that he finally makes the decision to relocate to Moscow, Prokofiev had spent a large portion of his career performing as a pianist, um, something he often needed to do to put money in the bank. And he, he really began to resent the time it took away from composing. And in the Soviet Union, state support for the arts was such that Prokofiev could really devote himself entirely to composing. And that was extremely attractive for him. But the decisive moment came when, when Prokofiev began to understand that to continue receiving Soviet commissions would mean relocating to Moscow. Uh, and he made the move, uh, as I mentioned, in 1936. But it wasn't as monumental for him as it might seem for us, because, of course, we have the, the benefit of historical hindsight, and we know that things were about to get really bad in Stalin's Russia. Uh, Prokofiev assumed that he'd be able to continue an international career, just one based in Moscow rather than in Paris. And this, this in fact, worked out for a while. In 1937, 1938, he went on international tours. And then, of course, the war made foreign travel impossible. And by the time the war ended, uh, things, of course, looked very different. Uh, but one of the interesting questions has always been whether uh, this repatriation made Prokofiev uh, give up his interest in modernism. His music in the 1920s is often far more complex and dissonant than it was in the later 1930s and the 1940s. And during the Cold War, this led to English language biographies with, with titles like... Um, my favorite is uh, Prokofiev, a Soviet tragedy. Um, and the implication here being that uh, had Prokofiev remained in the West, uh, he might have continued pursuing modernism like Stravinsky and had a very different career. But really, the consensus now and the consensus that's, that's come out in the last 10 years is that Prokofiev really had already begun to simplify his, uh, his music in, in very significant ways well before he returned to Russia, or at least made the decision to return to Russia. Um, and in fact, uh, when, he, when he finally made this final decision to return, he probably at that point found better audiences for the kind of music he wanted to write in the Soviet Union than he did in the West. And of course, the, the, um, the, the big irony here is that Prokofiev's most famous works today, uh, if you think of, of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, the Fifth Symphony, War and Peace, uh, Cinderella, of course, Alexander Nevsky. Uh, these are all the works that have proved the most enduring throughout the 20th century. These all come from his Soviet years, not his his years abroad, which I think is, is, is really fascinating. Yeah, it, it's quite an irony that it's those Stalin, those works from the Stalin period rather than and and he, yeah, the way that his the way he perceived what was going to be popular in the West and what actions up being popular in the West. That's interesting that it sort of turned out to be different. Yeah. Um. So 
so he returns to, to Stalinist Russia. And of course, as you said, not long after that, things get really bad. And I'm wondering, um, can you, the Nevsky, the movie, becomes is part of the political, um, you know, it becomes, uh, uh, or maybe it was even written particularly to be a propaganda piece. Um, and that that sort of is part of its history for, you know, until today. So I wonder if you could talk first about how, uh, how it worked, how this movie worked within the political situation when it was uh, first made. And of course, in those, you know, those years going through the war and, and how it, um, uh, because it's, you know, it is an anti-German movie, but Soviet Union wasn't always anti-German. So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Of course. Uh, I, I, so this this film is one example of of really a, a large scale resurrection of the Russian past in the Soviet sphere during the 1930s. Uh, the the 1920s, basically the first decade of of Soviet power, uh, there was a distinct uh, disconnect between the Soviet present and the Russian past, uh, and this was. This, of course, was very ideological, very pragmatic, because the path to communism was supposed to be an international one. Uh, and it involved uh, casting off the Tsarist past, casting off the, the Russian past. But by the time we get to the 1930s, uh, there's always been this, this well-known uh, turn to historical topics in, in Soviet Russia. And really, this, this involved a lot of of pragmatism on the part of Soviet power because uh, Marxist-Leninist ideology often fell flat with a lot of common Soviet citizens. This was not uh, emotionally compelling stuff. It was not something that uh, could get a lot of people fired up. But you have these great historical figures who were not uh, only military figures or um, people of the type of Alexander Nevsky, but you also have the, the great um, Russian artists of the of the 19th century, Alexander Pushkin, for instance, and these these figures were in the 1930s through these large projects like Alexander Nevsky, uh, resurrected and basically called to service um, in the in the name of Soviet patriotism to get Soviet citizens fired up uh, and and really behind. The, the Soviet cause and, and emotionally invested in the Soviet cause in a way that they hadn't been uh, before. And so you have that going on, um, but I, I think it's really interesting uh, the reasons why Prokofiev uh, got involved in this project, because uh, by getting involved in this project, he, of course, was getting involved in a propaganda pod project on some level. Uh, but I think he came, from a, came at it, at least, from a very different angle. Uh, Prokofiev had always been a very avid fan of film throughout his life. Uh, he, he enjoyed seeing films. He enjoyed going to the cinema. Uh, but the idea of composing a film score for him came relatively late. And it, it came as a result of two visits to Hollywood. And these visits to Hollywood really piqued his interest. And, and the, the first of these visits, which I mentioned very briefly in the book, uh, happened in 1930. And at this point, Prokofiev was on a, an American tour and he received uh, an invitation, invitation to Hollywood from none other than Gloria Swanson, 
who had him come to Hollywood and entertained him there and asked him to compose a score for a romantic comedy in which she was starring called uh, What a Widow. And Prokofiev actually considered this offer very seriously. And it didn't work out in the end because Prokofiev uh, really bumbled the, the contract negotiations. Uh, but, but two things came out of this. Um, and Prokofiev writes about these in his journal uh, very, very directly and very clearly. Uh, on the one hand, he said, Hollywood smells of money. And he was very clearly attracted to um, the, the opportunities presented him uh, as, a, as a composer. But then he also wrote, uh, you know, almost very passionately about um, how much he would like to write for a mass audience. But he was very, uh, uh, how to put this, he was very um, unsure of how to write quality music for them or what he felt would be quality music. And he was very concerned about being perceived as a commercial sellout. Um, and he, he picked on one of, his, one of his friends for this a lot. Uh, another fellow Russian emigre uh, named Vladimir Dukelsky. And uh, Dukelsky wrote classical music uh, under, his, under his Russian name, Vladimir Dukelsky, uh, and then had uh, um, <laughs> wrote popular songs and Broadway music as Vernon Duke. And Prokofiev saw this, this dual personality as, as a complete sellout and as something that he was not willing to do. So Prokofiev struggled with this, with this a lot. Uh, but really, the key moment came uh, eight years later when Prokofiev visited Hollywood uh, a second time. He was again on tour in the United States, and he had made it as far west as Denver and received a phone call from Paramount. And they invited him out to Hollywood, and there were some pretty serious negotiations uh, here. Uh, they tried to attract Prokofiev to Hollywood, and it didn't work out because of the, the tour schedule. But it seems as if uh, Prokofiev really seriously considered returning the following year and writing a film score in Hollywood and perhaps even setting up some sort of arrangement where he would return every year and for part of the year write film scores in, in Hollywood. But of course, unfortunately, this was Prokofiev's last tour abroad. He never left the Soviet Union after 1938. So all of these plans came to naught. Uh, but he, he returned to Moscow uh, from this tour in the spring of 1938, and this was the exact moment Eisenstein was looking for a composer for Alexander Nevsky. Um, Eisenstein had hoped to work not with Prokofiev, but with a younger composer named Gavriil Popov, who was a rising star in film music. A few years earlier, he had written um, a successful score for an enormously popular film called Chapayev, uh, and Eisenstein really wanted Popov to write for, for Nevsky. Uh, but for uh, some political reasons, the studio that Eisenstein was working at was really res reticent and unwilling to, to hire Popov. And so this is how Prokofiev came on board, really as, as Eisenstein's uh, second choice. But for Prokofiev, I think the, the attraction here was, was pretty clear. Uh, Eisenstein was internationally famous. He was an excellent director. He was smart. He had a lot of respect for music. The film had a huge budget, and I think if Prokofiev was going to do this Hollywood plan seriously, uh, Nevsky would be uh, would be good practice for this. Uh, so Prokofiev came at this, I think, from a very different angle, but really did get himself involved in what was a politically motivated project and a project that was, in the end, uh, something that led to Stalinist propaganda.
So in the Soviet Union, how overt was it as a propaganda piece? I mean, did people talk about it specifically in terms of World War II? Or was that just so understood that, uh, you know, they didn't need to talk about it? I mean, what sort of rhetoric did they use about it? So, so Nevsky was uh, was doubly successful for for Prokofiev. Uh, the, the film itself was a huge hit, and of course, Prokofiev benefited individually from uh, what was a huge collaborative project. Uh, but the interesting thing here is that Prokofiev turned the score into uh, a cantata the following year, uh, and in fact, he retained the right to do this in his contract that he signed for the film, uh, and. The, the music was already known because of the film. And it also seemed to provide a good model for, for Soviet music. It was suitably heroic. It was accessible to a wide audience. It had some good nationalist references. Uh, and thanks to the film became, uh, essentially came prepackaged with, uh, with content on two levels. Um, there's, of course, the overall narrative of the film, which the cantata approximates uh, and the other uh, is what Prokofiev really called the visuality of the music. Uh, there, there are lots of moments in this in this music where, uh, for example, during the battle, uh, there are musical gestures that suggest maybe the, the, this, a sword flying through the air and you hear these localized things. Um, so the music is very, very evocative. And this played really well with, with Soviet critics who highlighted all of these features. Uh, both to praise Prokofiev's accomplishments as a composer, but also really tacitly to say that all of this um, uh, is is the sort of work that that should serve as a model. Uh, but you but you asked uh, about the the propagandistic and a really uh, political political import of this film, and an unusual backdrop to all of this was the so-called Molotov Ribbentrop. Uh, non-aggression pact, which was an agreement between uh, the Nazis and the Soviet Union in 1939, which basically said that they would agree not to invade each other. And rumors immediately began to circulate that any Soviet art that depicted Germans in a negative light, and this included Alexander Nevsky, uh, had to be shelved. And they would return to circulation, of course, only when the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941 and broke this non-aggression uh, treaty. And the rumor is always uh, stuck with Nevsky. Uh, you can find it in numerous books uh, about the film that the, the film really was shelved for these two years. Uh, but in reality, the film was still shown regularly between 1939 and 1941. Eisenstein kept track of these showings, and there's a good record of this in his archive. And I suspect these, these rumors that Nevsky was shelved stuck uh, because it makes for a really nice, uh, albeit fictitious, example of the extent to which art and politics were linked in Stalin's Russia and that the signing of a political agreement dictated the fortunes of a film that was uh, otherwise produced by uh, the country's great artistic minds. Well, I'm going to have to change the way I teach this song now, this piece now, because uh, I always taught that it was put away. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Well, thank you for setting me straight. Um, so what about the long-term rece uh, reception after the war and when it starts to be played uh, in the West? How is that different? Uh, sure. Well, an important thing to consider here 
um, is the, the, the film Alexander Nevsky came to the United States relatively quickly and was moderately successful. But the Nevsky cantata, this, this uh, concert version of it that Prokofiev wrote in 1939, came a little bit later. Uh, and it came to the U.S. during the war. Uh, and, of course, this is a time when the United States and the Soviet Union were allies. And American approval for the Soviet Union was at a high point, And this approval also extended to Soviet art as well. You, you might think here about the American premiere of Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony, uh, which was really one of the most celebrated premieres of the Warriors. And we, we get a little bit of that with the premiere of the Alexander Nevsky Cantata, too. Uh, the, the first of these, the, the initial premiere, was in March 1943 with the NBC Symphony under Stokowski. But there was also uh, a second, much more publicized performance in 1945 at Carnegie Hall. Uh, this one was with the Philadelphia Orchestra under Ormandy. And what's really fascinating for me here is that as far as the critics were concerned, uh, this piece was understood as not specific to Soviet wartime experience or even about Soviet patriotism, but it seemed to say something about the experience of war in, in general. And, uh, you know, to be sure, Prokofiev really had no monopoly on the struggle to victory narrative, which is essentially what this cantata follows. It follows from the film too. Uh, uh, but it really was helped a great deal by the fact that most Americans heard the music as a cantata that is not attached to Eisenstein's film. So it was already one step removed from its original context. Uh, and moreover, uh, neither in the cantata's text uh, nor the program note Prokofiev wrote to accompany the cantata is there really any explicit tie to Stalinism or communism. And that, that's to say it was relatively easy for non-Soviet audiences to perceive its subject matter exactly for what it was, um, an inspirational tale from the 13th century, and really not for how it was used in the Soviet Union, which was as propaganda meant to foster patriotism and, and nationalism. And so in the book, I, I talk about other instances in uh, which this music appears in different contexts and is is reformulated and understood in different ways uh, that keeps taking us further and further away from the original context of the music. And I think uh, one of the most fascinating, at least for me, uh, things to write about in the book uh, was the, the recent phenomenon of the Nevsky film concert, as it's known, uh, which is where a live orchestra plays Prokofiev's film score to a live showing of the film. And this most often happens uh, at outdoor concerts. And the, the idea for this and, and a lot of the work for this uh, was um, done by producer John Guberman and a composer and arranger named William Brown, who both did incredible amounts of work to make the first film concert happen. And this was in 1987 in, in Los Angeles. And since then, the, this idea of a Nevsky film concert has been imitated countless times and really around the world. It's, it's, it's kind of striking. What fascinates me here is, is how the concert setting, seeing this as an outdoor concert most often, puts the focus on Prokofiev's music. And here the film uh, serves almost as an accompaniment rather than the other way around. And there's also the feat of coordinating everything in real time, which is what makes these film concerts so fascinating to hear and to watch. 
but it also radically changes the experience of Eisenstein's film. And then, of course, the musical meanings change along with it, too. Uh, and just to give you a sense of how far Prokofiev's music had come from its original context in a film meant to stir up Stalinist patriotism, uh, at this original film concert in 1987, AT&T funded some of the performance. And they issued an official statement saying that they saw Nevsky in this form as a vehicle to further Ronald Reagan's commitment to peace and diplomacy. Uh, which, I, which I really think is one of the more bizarre paths music, uh, Prokofiev's music has gone down uh, in, the, in the 20th century, considering uh, where it came from. Well, it does show how much you can, how much the current political situation can change people's perception of a piece from the original perception of it, right? Uh, and I... Yeah, and of course there are a lot, a lot of other examples of that. Beethoven's symphonies were used by both the Germans and the Allies as uh, sort of musical, uh, as a musical backdrop to the war, supporting each side. And uh, there's a lot of other examples. But I'm wondering, just on a kind of meta level, how do you feel about that? Like, is it? Can, I guess can we? Um, is it okay to reconceptualize a piece that radically? Um, or is it doing some kind of maybe violence to Prokofiev and to the movie to um, to really take it so far out of its original context? How, because that really does change how we are going to perceive that work. Uh, well, this, this, of course, is a really tricky question. Um, but I, I think it comes down to uh, where you are actually locating what you might call the, the musical meaning. Um, of, of either the piece or the performance or the audience's experience of it. Uh, and in Prokofiev's case, uh, a lot of attention has been given to the content of the music. Um, and that is to say what sort of meaning we can find within the music itself. And so let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Um, so we might make a comparison with uh, a piece called Zdravice, which uh, in English is... Um, uh, often rendered as uh, hail to Stalin or toast to Stalin. This is essentially a, a, a 15 or so minute cantata that Prokofiev wrote for Stalin's 60th birthday in 1939. And the cantata, as you might expect, uh, it has a text, which is one long love letter to the, to the dictator. And it concludes with the choir uh, likening Stalin to a flame that warms their spirits and their blood, and it's 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 really <laughs> it's really dramatic. You have uh, sopranos screeching out on high seas Stalin's name, um, and, and so and, you know you have works like this that are appearing alongside the the Alexander Nevsky cantata. In the case of 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 Stravitsa, uh, under Khrushchev, after nineteen fifty six, after Stalin is dead, after Prokofiev is dead. Uh, Stalin's name was taken out of the text of the, the cantata, and it essentially became a, a cantata uh, to communism rather than to, to Stalin. And um, you know, a lot of a lot of pressure here is being placed on the text as as driving the content of the work. And there have been some some recent performance of this uh, performances of this cantata. And there's been a lot of hand-wringing over whether that's politically correct or not. And the discussion is stuck largely on the fact that some feel that this is really good music on the part of Prokofiev, just with a really bad text. 
And there are others that feel that the, the text corrupts the, the, whole, the whole work. But I think with the, with the Nevsky Kinkata, you have something very different, since there's essentially no corrupting text. Um, again, you don't have any specific references to Stalin, communism, anything in, in the text of the, the Kinkata. So I think the more important question for us and the more important question for uh, the Nevsky music is how it's being used or how it was used. Uh, in 1938, when the music was attached to Eisenstein's film, of course, the music was really good at whipping up Soviet patriotism and nationalism. Uh, in 1945 in New York, another moment I write about um, as a cantata for concert performance, it, the music was really good at expressing the excitement of victory at the end of what was a really long and horrific war. Uh, but... Uh, uh, one of my favorite anecdotes uh, comes from a record annotator, and I mentioned this briefly in the book, uh, who was uh, fascinated by an outdoor performance of the cantata he saw uh, in Grant Park in Chicago. And this was the late 1970s or early 80s. And he remembers looking up uh, at, the, at the buildings that surround Grant Park and seeing neon signs and other things that he associated with capitalism. Well, the music down on stage, which was originally from a communist uh, context, you know, you know, plays out in the situation. And he, he comments, you know, the audience, audience is completely oblivious to this contrast. And, you know, you know really the, the, the cantata, the Nevsky cantata, is an incredibly accessible work, incredibly attractive work. It's big, it's exciting, and it has this strong struggle to victory narrative that I mentioned earlier. And I think that makes the work um, successful in a lot of different contexts. And there's rarely any of the kind of hand-wringing you have um, like you would with a performance of, of Zdravice, this toast to Stalin, or, or even uh, the, the cantata for the 20th anniversary of, revolution, of the revolution, which is another one of um, Prokofiev's political works. Um, one last question. Again, it sort of relates to the uh, Soviet... Um you know, the original um, place of this compose, uh, this composition is that it is supposed to be, I think, an example of socialist realism, which is a term that is used by this in the Soviet Union to uh, by Soviet officials to talk about the kind of music they wanted to hear. But I have never really understood what socialist realism is. <laughs> what, what did they mean when they told a composer they either had or had not achieved socialist realism? <laughs> uh, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> um, I, this is a complicated question, uh, but um, I guess I could start by saying that that Soviet artistic production was unionized in 1932, and this followed really a decade and a half of uh, relatively pluralistic artistic culture. And this uh, artistic doctrine, socialist realism, was meant to align art and political goals, and it was introduced through the unions. Uh, but the problem was, especially for musicians, that it was introduced in literature. And the, the main charge of socialist realism was to, um, you know, the, the description that gets thrown around, to give a historically accurate artistic depiction of reality in its revolutionary development. Um, 
which was <laughs> confusing for musicians. Um, and further, uh, art was meant to display nationality, follow the party line, and have clear content. Um, and, and so what this meant for music and what this meant for composers uh, was, was not an easy question. And I, and I would say it was much more difficult for them to figure out than it was, say, for, um, for writers who were dealing with words and, and novels and, and, and poetry. And so composers worked this doctrine out. What does socialist realism mean for music? Uh, throughout the 1930s, there was never a moment where this was handed down to them. It was something that was worked out by, by trial and error. And in practice, so this, this charge um, for nationality, following the party line, and having clear content, um, the nationality part of it uh, meant that there was eventually a reawakening of styles we'd associate with, uh, say, late 19th century Russian nationalism. So here, think of Mussorgsky and, and Rimsky-Korsakov, where you have uh, a style that had been very nationally marked. And the need to follow the party line and have clear content uh, led to a strong preference for texted genres, such as cantatas or programmatic instrumental works here, because uh, here, here the text uh, helped a lot answering the question, what is this music about? Which <laughs> made it a lot easier to answer the question, you know, is this, is this music that, um, that suits political goals or, 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 or not? Um, but, but I think the most significant thing here is that content had to be easily perceived, of course, which is really the factor that led to a very conservative musical style. Um, so nothing dissonant, nothing formally complex, uh, nothing that might potentially alienate a, a listener. And so by the, the end of the 1930s, largely by trial and error and, and you know, theorizing on the part of critics and trying to figure out what does this mean for, for music, uh, Soviet music had really dramatically narrowed on a style that re resembled late 19th century national style in, in many ways. Um, so socialist realism in music was something that was uh, really easy for contemporary observers, especially in the West. Uh, to pit against modernism, uh, where, of course, the values are, are, are quite different. Uh, uh, but what's, what's significant here, I think, for Soviet musical culture as a whole is there were no significant deep changes to the socialist realist program after Stalin's death in 1953. Um, and, and just as an, as an aside here, if listeners don't know, the uh, one of the really sad, interesting, bizarre things here is that Stalin and Prokofiev die on the same day, March 5th, 1953. Um, so, so after this, uh, there's, there's no big change in the, in the socialist realist program. There's a lot of talk about how under, under Khrushchev, uh, there's a, a loosening of hardline Stalinism, uh, often called the thaw. And many younger composers flocked to Western styles and approaches, uh, things they felt that they had been been denied under socialist realism, but there was always still a core of more official composers who were writing in a socialist realist style. Um, so this is uh, an abiding doctrine that was one of Stalinism's dubious gifts to, to Soviet culture as a whole. And I think just the last point here, uh, the way Alexander Nevsky fits into this really significantly, this development of socialist realism, is, is all of these things that by the 1930s uh, 
composers thought socialist realism, realism should be. So accessible, uh, national in character, uh, not complex, uh, very, very tuneful. Uh, Prokofiev's music for this film had all of this in, in spades. But of course, it, it originated as film music. And Prokofiev was largely writing here to suit the film. And of course, you've got Russians versus Germans in the film. So he decided to have the Russian music sound Russian. So he appeals to the National School of Composition there. Uh, this is, uh, he didn't want to alienate his listeners. So the music is, is relatively straightforward and not overly, overly complex. So he ends up um, largely by writing for the goals of the film, also writing music that was this incredible positive example of socialist realism that, of course, uh, composers imitate because it was very successful. And uh, they hoped that in imitating it, uh, they, they too would be successful. And this process narrows the remit of socialist realism down even, even further. So it was this, this gradual process that brought this about. And I think that leads to, to a lot of the uncertainty and a lot of the confusion that surrounds socialist realism in music in, in particular. Well, thank you very much. That's very helpful, actually. <laughs> so, uh, um, well, I think this would be a good time to stop, but I really appreciate all of your, you know, all taking the time to, to go through this interview. And I just want to say what a great book this is. I really appreciate how you were able to take in a really a short book, uh, a deep dive on one piece, but also then to open it up to the really interesting issues that um, this piece, both as a piece of film music and as a cantata, really opens up, whether that's talking about the political context or just the way that um, this particular piece works. So thank you so much for, for talking to us and for this book as well. Well, thank you. It's, it was, uh, you know, the book was a great fun to write because uh, it's uh, it's it's fun to pick up a single work and uh, especially one that is that is turned up in as many different places as Nevsky and really follow its career through the 20th and 21st centuries. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm very happy to, to, to be here to talk about it. So thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. 